mid-Michigan in the early 1970s. It sure seemed like there were a lot of women going missing, a lot of women found murdered. It was a scary and unsettling time. And I believe that some of these cases were the work of a serial killer, a man whose name you likely haven't heard before, Gerald Leroy Wingert. January 27th, 1973, Donald Magyar, who went by Don, he was worried. His 20-year-old wife, Dawn, and yeah, I know that's a little confusing, Dawn and Don. She hadn't made it back to their home after a day of shopping. She should have returned by now. It wasn't like her to be late to tend to him and their little boy, a little boy who'd celebrated his first birthday just a few days earlier. She should have called to let him know that she was going to be late. This wasn't like her at all. Don called the police. And police took his concerns about his missing wife seriously, and they started looking for her right away, piloting their cruisers through neighborhoods and parking lots, checking license plate numbers, and turning their head to track any woman walking by who matched Dawn's description. The truck she'd borrowed from her father-in-law earlier in the day was found abandoned at a store just north of Owasso. The keys to the truck were found underneath the vehicle. The passenger side door was locked, but the driver's door, it was unlocked. Police feared that an abduction took place and that her keys were lost in a struggle. Police put out Dawn's description to the public so they could keep an eye out for her. Blue eyes, blonde hair, five foot seven, slim build. She was last seen wearing a brown suede jacket, blue slacks, and light brown shoes. She also wears glasses when she drives. Police retraced Dawn's steps, learning that she stopped at a J.C. Penney earlier that day where she shopped for clothes. Then she drove to Stadium Plaza, about a quarter mile north of Owasso on M52, where she picked up groceries. After that, they lost her trail. Her purchases from J.C. Penney and the supermarket were in the truck. There were no other clues as to where she could be. Shiawassee County Sheriff Victor Moyles, he fears the young mother met with foul play. There was nothing in Dawn's past to indicate that she was the type of woman to voluntarily disappear. She'd been married for two years, she had a one-year-old son, and by all accounts she was happy in her marriage and had no reason to want to leave her life behind. What disturbed the sheriff most was how much this case resembled another case. One that happened in Lansing, and Lansing is about 35 miles from Owasso, and there was a concerning disappearance from that area. In August, Betty Jean Goodrich was last seen in the parking lot of the Meyer Thrifty Acres store. And yeah, that's what Meyer was called way back when, Meyer Thrifty Acres. The store was on West Saginaw in Lansing. Her body was found the next day in a wooded area of Barry County near Hastings. She'd been strangled and stabbed four times in the chest. Her body was found with her own belt wrapped around her throat. In January of 1973, when Dawn vanished, Betty Jean's killer was still at large, and police had few leads. The only witnesses to her disappearance were a young woman and her eight-year-old son. They saw Betty Jean get into a car with a man in the parking lot of the store, but it was raining at the time, so they did not get a good look at the man in the car. With the murder of Betty Jean fresh in everyone's mind, a Shiawassee County deputy reluctantly told the press that they had no leads in Dawn's disappearance. Gathering all the resources at their disposal to find Dawn, 
they requested that Michigan State Police send their helicopter to assist in the search. But even with air support, they had no luck. A posse of about 4,000 people was formed to search the Owasso Township area on foot and horseback, but they too came up empty. Dawn Magyar was still missing. At home, her husband and infant son, they waited for news. On the afternoon of February 5, 1973, a woman's body is discovered 15 miles from Owasso. A nine-year-old boy, Wayne Summers, and his older brother, William, they found the body in Saginaw County while they were out tapping maple trees. The remains were fully clothed, but according to a story by Tony Hornus of the Argus Press newspaper, her undergarments were missing and they were never recovered. An autopsy was conducted to determine cause and time of death. While the press was asking if the body was that of Don Magyar, the Shiawassee Sheriff's investigative team refused to make a positive identification, but the Cribs Funeral Home in Corona, they identified the body as that of Dawn. And the next day, police finally confirmed that yes, they'd found Dawn's body. The cause of death was gunshot wound. She'd been shot in the back and in the head. From the appearance of her remains, she'd been dead for weeks. I believe she was dressed in the same clothes she'd been wearing when she left home in her father-in-law's pickup to do some shopping. At the time, investigators speculated that there, she was not a victim of sexual assault because her clothes did not look disturbed. But at autopsy, they confirmed that she was the victim of a sexual assault, and technicians carefully scraped under her nails and collected specimens from her body, evidence that won't help them in the short term but years later will prove very valuable. In June of 1974, 15 months after Dawn's body was found, and with Betty Jean's case in Lansing still unsolved, another woman vanished from the area. 29-year-old Pamela Hill of Chessening left home driving her green Volkswagen. She planned to join her husband and two children on a camping trip. She was on her way to Sand Lake near Grand Rapids, but Pamela never arrived. Her body was found inside the men's bathroom at the M52 County Park at M52 and Johnstone Road. Pamela, who worked as a beautician in Owasso, died of multiple stab wounds. And while police at the time said they had several suspects, they made no arrests. And they were looking into a link between Pamela and Dawn because of the similarities between the cases. Pamela's uncle, Bud Blackmer, he told the press that Pamela was stabbed in the heart, lungs, and liver. Her purse, glasses, and red scarf were found in her car, which was left behind a tavern in a nearby town. He said, but in all the years we've known her, we've never seen Pam in a bar. Bud also confirmed that the family knew of no boyfriends Pamela could have had. At first blush, the cases don't seem related. Dawn was shot, Pamela stabbed and strangled. But this is not a heavily populated part of the state. Having three women go missing and turn up murdered, Betty Jean, Dawn, and Pamela, that's a lot of victims. Also, in June of 1974, a 22 caliber revolver, believed to be the same gun that killed Dawn, was recovered from the Shiawassee River in Owasso. Though the gun was rusted and unable to fire, it was still loaded. It contained three spent rounds that matched the brand of bullets used to kill Dawn. Police were excited to have this new piece of evidence, and they were able to trace the gun to a pawn shop in Yuma, Arizona, where it had been purchased by a man named Robert Shaw. 
Two years later, in 1976, Dawn's wallet and ID were found on the bank of the Shiawassee River, not far from where they had found the revolver. Eventually, police tracked down Robert Shaw, and he admitted to owning the gun, but he said he'd lost it years earlier. During the police interview, he brought up his ex-wife's boyfriend, a man named Gerald Wingert. Despite new evidence, there wasn't enough to make an arrest in the case, and the murder of Don Magyar went cold. In the only article I was able to find on Pamela Hill's murder, which was dated June of 1974, it shows that her case is also unsolved and cold. Looking for information on the murder of Betty Jean, Dawn, and Pamela led to a list of cases dating back to 1970 in the greater Lansing area. There was the August 19, 1972 stabbing death of Irene Waters. Waters was either 50 or 58 years old. The papers aren't consistent in aging her. She received a phone call and exited her apartment. Then she was stabbed to death as she went to her car. Then we have the July 25, 1972 murder of 19-year-old college student Diane Osinski. She also received a phone call, allegedly about a babysitting job. She left her residence and vanished. Her skeletal remains were found 10 months later in the Rose Lake research area. And listeners, if Rose Lake sounds familiar to you, we discussed Rose Lake back in episode 89, The Disappearance of Chris Temple. There is an absolutely tragic and horrific side note to Diane Osinski's murder. According to the Lansing Journal, her father died about a week after her remains were recovered, and her mother died by suicide in the mid-1970s. Diane does have a surviving sister who lives in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. A May 11, 1973 story in the Lansing Journal brings us one more unexplained murder, the November 11, 1970 death of Marie Ann Jackson. She was sexually assaulted and strangled, her nude body found a week after she disappeared. In the first half of the 1970s, the mid-Michigan area struggled under the weight of many unsolved murders, and those cases went cold for 20-some years. That's when DNA testing was used on the previously mentioned specimens preserved during Dawn's autopsy. Detective Sergeant Gail Van Lopik confirmed the testing, stating, There was a lot of foresight by the detectives and the lab people back then to preserve evidence. And while the testing in 1995 ruled out one Owasso man as a suspect, it would take six more years before police finally got a look at the right man. In March of 2001, Michigan State Police used DNA evidence to make an arrest in Don Magyar's murder. Police arrested 60-year-old Gerald Wingert for the crime. He was living in Centerline, Michigan with his fourth wife. Centerline, in Macomb County, is a Detroit suburb. Gerald was living what appeared to be an average life in the Burbs. He had a grown daughter from a previous marriage. He worked at Chrysler's Sterling Heights stamping plant in the accounting department. He was well known for his computer skills. After surveilling him for days, police were able to obtain Gerald's DNA from saliva on a discarded cigarette butt found in the trash. His DNA was a match to the DNA taken from Don's crime scene. Through investigating, police found Gerald was in the Owasso area visiting a friend around the time of Dawn's murder. 
They believe that he saw her while she was out shopping and made contact with her while she was in the shopping center parking lot. Because of the statute of limitations, 10 and 6 years respectively, Gerald could not be charged for the kidnapping and rape of Don Magyar. He was, however, charged with first-degree murder. He was tried in November 2001 at the Livingston County Courthouse. The trial was held in Livingston County instead of Shiawassee County or Saginaw County because of all of the attention the case drew prior to the trial. Gerald's defense was that he had consensual sex with Dawn, and that's why his semen was found at the scene. However, expert testimony for the prosecution posited that Gerald's DNA was left on Dawn during the brief time when she went missing and was killed. On November 27, 2001, Gerald was found guilty of first-degree felony and premeditated murder. In 2002, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Dawn's mother, brother, and sister-in-law were still alive to see justice for Dawn. Her father had passed away back in 1988. Gerald's appeal of his conviction was rejected in 2003. In May of 2004, his appeal was denied again, this time by the Michigan Supreme Court. Gerald insisted that he was innocent and guilty of only having a consensual interlude with Dawn on the afternoon she went missing. I mean, he must have the worst luck, right? To understand what kind of man Gerald Wingert was, we need to go back to the early 1960s, to his first of many brushes with the law. In July of 1961, a blind 19-year-old woman and her 20-year-old date drove out to a lover's lane for some time alone. While they were parked, another car pulled in facing them. A man in his early 20s got out of the car and threatened them with a rifle. Then he bound the man's hands and feet and left him on the side of the road, driving off in the man's vehicle with his date. The aggressor also took $2 from the guy's wallet before he left. The robber-turned-kidnapper drove a mile and a half up the road before he guided the car onto the shoulder. He raped the woman, then pushed her from the vehicle and drove off. She found help from a passerby a short time later and was taken to the Ann Arbor Hospital where she was treated for rape and shock. Authorities were unable to question her until after she was treated. Because he left his car behind, Washtenaw County Sheriff's deputies were quickly able to connect Gerald to the crime. They put out two warrants for his arrest, and authorities from four states searched for him in an exhaustive manhunt. Gerald voluntarily turned himself into a lawyer, Joseph Lowe, once he heard the news story on the radio that police were looking for him. A University of Michigan engineering sophomore and a married man, 20-year-old Gerald Wingert claimed that he didn't remember a thing, that he'd suffered a complete blackout. Wingert's friends and family were very supportive and stood behind him. Now, Gerald Wingert hails from Niles, Michigan, which sits in the southwest corner of the state, not far from Benton Harbor. Niles is a waterfront community enjoying the St. Joseph River. The nearest big city, if you will, to Niles is South Bend, Indiana. Local South Bend papers, they covered his case as well as the Michigan papers did. When Wingert assaulted the blind woman and left her on the side of the road, he drove all the way to Niles, back to his hometown, which is where he consulted an attorney before turning himself in. Gerald was well-known in Niles. He was a Niles High School graduate in 1959, where he lettered in football, baseball, and track. He had a younger brother who was similarly athletic. 
Gerald married his high school sweetheart. This was after she'd spent a year at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he had a year at Michigan Mining and Technical College. I believe they both transferred to the University of Michigan, which is where they were studying when the attack occurred in 1961. A search of Gerald's apartment revealed pieces of rope that were similar to the rope used to bound the man before the woman was kidnapped and assaulted. The date was able to pick Gerald out of a lineup as the one who robbed and assaulted them. Gerald was charged with rape and armed robbery on July 11th. For his defense, he claimed not to remember anything after being discharged from the University Medical Center earlier that day. He'd been in the hospital being treated for a back injury following a car accident. Gerald's attorney appeared before Ypsilanti Township Justice Alfred Sullivan, and he demanded a hearing, an examination of Gerald. Justice Sullivan ordered Wingert be held on $7,500 bond on each count. He also ordered for Gerald to appear for examination on July 17th. The hearing was postponed until July 30th, as requested by Gerald's attorney. Meanwhile, Wingert was freed on $15,000 bond. When the trial took place in October, Gerald testified in his own defense. He gave the judge a disjointed and vague recollection of what happened that night. He said he remembered a girl being pushed or jumping from the car. He remembered a car and headlights shining. The first he knew of the charges against him was when he woke up in the morning and heard about them on the radio. He claimed he was temporarily insane at the time of the crime. His attorney opened his defense with the statement that his client had only fragmentary memory of the event. The attorney also called four character witnesses for his client, his mother, Olive Wingert, his high school principal, Theodore Leish, a Niles minister, and his high school football coach, Terrence Carey. Mrs. Wingert testified that Gerald became nervous and depressed after the death of his eight-month-old son. As the trial progressed, Wingert's wife sat in the gallery to support him. And regarding the loss of his eight-month-old son... All I could find was a newspaper obituary dated April 15, 1961. And according to findagrave.com, Stephen Charles Wingert was ill since his birth in August of 1960. Ned Dykeman, a University of Michigan student who worked with Gerald at an off-campus restaurant, he gave some insight into what Gerald did the day of the assault. The two men went to a birthday party and later to German Park, an outdoor recreation area. They drank beer at both locations. It was after Gerald left the park that he approached the couple parked on Lover's Lane. A two-man sanity commission appointed by Circuit Judge James R. Brakey Jr. reported earlier that Gerald is sane and that he was capable of aiding in his own defense. The judge would go on to hear the trial without a jury at the request of the defendant. Despite the fact that he was ruled sane by the sanity commission, his defense was that he was insane at the time of the crime. He had psychiatrists testify that he suffered from involuntary loss of memory, as well as schizoid split personality characteristics. Now, if you're not familiar with schizoid personality, it is not the same as schizophrenia. According to the Psychology Today website, people with a schizoid personality are often cold, distant, aloof, and detached. They may appear socially withdrawn or awkward, and they may struggle with interpersonal relationships. One of the psychiatrists that testified, Dr. Raymond W. Wagner, said that he fully believed that Gerald was temporarily insane at the time of the crime, 
He also testified that he did not use truth serum or hypnosis on Gerald because his mental condition is so fragile, so brittle, it could precipitate a complete psychosis. Trying one of these methods could cause Gerald to lose all contact with reality and have a long stay in a mental institution. It's kind of funny to hear them talk about truth serum and hypnosis, which we would never in a million years consider using or even talking about today. Gerald's wife, Suzanne, she was also called to testify. She stated that Gerald was not an emotional person and that he'd become even more reserved and quiet since the death of their son. Assistant Prosecutor William F. Delhi, he built his case on the testimony of the police officers who worked the investigation. The principal investigator, Sheriff's Detective Stanley J. Dulgaroff, spoke about how officers found clothing, belongings, and other items in her date's car, which Gerald allegedly stole and abandoned near Niles before surrendering. In October of 1961, Gerald Wingert was found guilty of robbery and assault. He broke into tears as the Washtenaw County Circuit Judge read the verdict. This was after displaying stoic calm throughout much of the trial. Gerald's wife clung crying to her husband when the verdict was announced. As they led him away, she fell to the floor of the courtroom in uncontrollable sobs. The next month, it was announced that Gerald was seeking a new trial. The request was filled by his attorney, Richard R. Ryan. Gerald was seeking to contest his concurrent prison sentences of 9 to 30 years and 10 to 30 years in prison for his crimes. Meanwhile, he was sent to the Ionia State Prison. In April of 1962, Judge Carl F. Zick granted a divorce to Suzanne Wingert on the grounds of cruelty. Suzanne alleged in the bill of complaint that Gerald had told her prior to his crimes that he did not love her and he wished to be free of her. Suzanne also said that the couple had violent disagreements on such matters as religion, the rearing of children, and the management of their home. Gerald's conviction and prison sentence were included in the divorce bill as additional grounds for the divorce. Suzanne, I hope you met someone nice and that you had a good life, because you dodged a bullet when you got rid of Gerald. In October of 1963, the Michigan Supreme Court upheld his robbery and criminal assault conviction. In a 7-to-1 decision, the High Court rejected the claim that there was judicial error in his first trial, and therefore he was not entitled to a new hearing. Gerald spent eight years in prison, and then he was released. And as far as anyone can tell, things were quiet in Gerald's life until 1981 when 40-year-old Gerald was charged in the death of Laura May McVeigh back in 1979. Gerald was a former resident of Eaton Rapids, a community near the Michigan capital of Lansing, and Laura had lived in nearby Hubbardston. Gerald, who relocated to Albany, New York in 1979, he was arrested by state troopers near Niles, Michigan when he returned for a visit with his family. The Wexford County Prosecutor's Office authorized a warrant charging him with first-degree murder. The arrest was a culmination of a two-year investigation by state troopers in Lakeview and Ionia, as well as sheriff's departments in Ionia and Montcalm counties. Laura McVeigh was last seen alive as she headed home from a babysitting job near Carson City on April 7, 1979. The route home would have been about seven miles. The body of the blonde teenager was found May 12th near Cadillac. She was wearing her blue high school jogging suit and her remains were found by mushroom hunters about 90 miles north of her Ionia County home. 
a piece of rope was wound around her neck. An autopsy confirmed that she had been strangled to death. According to police, there was no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. You see, while Gerald lived in New York State and he moved there just a week or two after Laura's murder, his parents and grandparents still lived in Howard Township just outside of Niles, and he had relatives in nearby Cassopolis. Police just happened to catch Gerald on a visit to his parents. We staked out the Niles place, and we were lucky enough to find him driving into his father's driveway just after he entered the state, said Sergeant William Trapp. Authorities said that Gerald was always a suspect. The evidence today is essentially what we had two years ago. The difference is there's a new prosecutor in Wexford County, and he thought there was enough evidence to issue a warrant, said Ionia County Sheriff William Bensinger. Gerald was arraigned in the Wexford County District Court. A preliminary examination was held to see if a trial should go forth. Gerald's attorney was based out of Lansing, James L. Theophilus. The examination was delayed twice, and Gerald was held in the Wexford County Jail without bond, waiting to see if the trial would proceed. Part of this examination looked at whether they should allow testimony from a witness who was under hypnosis when they made their identification of Gerald. 22-year-old Douglas Speece went under hypnosis when he identified Gerald as the one driving the van along the road the day that Laura disappeared. Cadillac District Judge Frank Miltner, he ultimately denied the prosecution's request to use the testimony. Gerald's lawyer called the rejection of the testimony crucial to his client's case. The rest of the day was spent reconstructing the victim's final hours and attempting to place Gerald in the vicinity. Wexford County Prosecutor Joseph Harris Jr., submitted as evidence a credit card receipt from a Carson City gas station signed by Gerald and dated the weekend of Laura's disappearance. Gerald's attorney, Roger Wartilla, he argued to quash the affidavit for a search warrant that led state police and Ionia County Sheriff's deputies to seize fiber samples from Gerald's van, which they searched two days after Laura's disappearance. These fibers, which included dog hairs, are the key piece of evidence, and without species identification, they are the only link between Gerald and Laura. Wotilla also asked for the case to be dismissed because of the long time between April 7, 1979, and the arrest in 1981. That request was denied. It's also a bit of foreshadowing because in 2001, he'll be arrested for a murder he committed more than 20 years earlier. In February 1982, Judge William Peterson ruled that a seizure and subsequent search of a van owned by Gerald was so patently illegal as to require no further comment, and he suppressed the evidence that came from the search. In a 15-page opinion, Judge Peterson ruled that state police and Ionia County deputies illegally seized the van and that false statements were made on the affidavit to obtain a warrant to search the vehicle. Wotilla told the court that Gerald allowed police to inspect his van the day after Laura disappeared, and then agreed to allow his van to be inspected by state crime personnel the next day. When that personnel did not show up, Gerald tried to leave and police seized the van. In his ruling, Judge Peterson said if there was not probable cause for the issuance of a search warrant, there was surely even less for the seizure of the defendant's vehicle without a warrant. After being asked what effect the judge's suppression order would have on the case, Prosecutor Joe Harris said, It's not going to help. At this point, no trial date was set. Gerald was still in jail in lieu of a half a million dollar bond. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the prosecution's case to collapse. 
Just 11 days after the judge's ruling to suppress the evidence found from the search of the van, the prosecution dropped charges against Gerald and he was set free. Without this evidence, they had nothing to bring before a jury. And you need to know that the evidence they found was solid. They matched dog hairs from inside the van to dog hairs found on McVeigh's body. It's worth mentioning that Wingert got rid of the dog in the days after McVeigh was murdered. It was also in the days after the murder that he relocated from Michigan to New York State. Another point worth mentioning, which again comes from reporter Tony Hornus at the Argus Press newspaper, is that there were jurisdictional issues with the McVeigh case. Her remains were found on the Montcalm Ionia County line. So everybody wanted a little piece of it from the county sheriffs to the state police. Judge Peterson signed the petition requesting dismissal of the first degree murder charge due to insufficient evidence. And Gerald's attorney said what the judge said in his opinion was that the statements attributed to two witnesses in the affidavit to get the search warrant did not square with their testimony. Given the evidence that was presented at the hearing, it was the only reasonable choice for the judge to make. Prosecutor Harris, on the other hand, his statement was, there was insufficient evidence after the judge suppressed the evidence for us to proceed. While chain-smoking and dressed in the same pinstripe suit he wore to many court hearings, Gerald stood smiling outside of the jail. He said, it feels good to be out here. It feels very good. And I want to add, I'm not guilty. I did not kill that girl. Gerald informed his family of the dismissal by telephone. He waited at his attorney's office for about three hours before being picked up by family members who drove in from the Niles area. But this was not the end of problems for the prosecution concerning this affidavit. Judge Peterson alleged that a police officer lied to obtain the search warrant, which sought murder evidence against Gerald. His assertion that perjury was committed came in a letter to a citizen, and this letter was subsequently released to several newspapers. Judge Peterson alleged that Montcalm County Detective William McCarthy lied to Eaton County Prosecutor Paul Berger to get the warrant for Wingert's van. Despite the judge's assertions, Eaton County authorities said in March of 82 that they did not intend to file perjury charges against Detective McCarthy. Prosecutor Berger stated, I've written to the judge telling him that after my review, I don't believe there was a perjury. Even if there was a falsehood, I don't know how we'd prove there was intent. Detective McCarthy denied that he lied to the Eaton County prosecutor about witnesses' testimony to obtain the search warrant. Angered by claims made by Judge Peterson about his detective, Montcalm County Sheriff Thomas Herbert said he wanted the judge investigated by the State Judicial Tenure Commission but his call for an investigation went nowhere. As if the prosecution of Laura McVeigh's murder wasn't tragic enough, the next month, Detective McCarthy was responding to a domestic dispute. These are some of the most dangerous calls an officer can make. And the detective was shot after entering the trailer of Robert Solomon after another officer tried unsuccessfully to settle an argument between Solomon and his wife. McCarthy was a 21-year police veteran who had been with the Montcalm County Sheriff's Department since 1969. Because the case never went to trial, there's no chance of double jeopardy, and Gerald could be tried again for the murder of Laura McVeigh. In 2004, police said they were looking into DNA technology as a way of connecting Gerald to the crime. They were also looking into possibly connecting him to other unsolved murders of young women. And listeners... 
I find it hard to believe that Gerald would have crimes in 1961, 1973, 1979, and then nothing. I believe there's a high likelihood that there are other cases. Police are going to have to work meticulously because Gerald is just passing his time in prison. He's not talking. Before we wrap up, I want to revisit the other cases we talked about this episode. Like Marie Ann Jackson, her murder was solved via DNA testing. Her killer died by suicide years before he was identified in her case. Betty Jean Goodrich, who disappeared from Meyer, her case was also resolved again by DNA. But again, the perpetrator had passed away years earlier. This leaves the cases of Irene Waters, Pamela Hill, and Diane Osinski still open, still unresolved. All cases from the early 1970s. And I wonder about other cases, cases that I cannot name here because they're under active investigation. It's possible that in the weeks or months ahead, we could revisit Gerald Wingert and show solid connections to other murders and disappearances from across Michigan, including in the Detroit area. Meanwhile, Gerald is living in the medical wing of a facility in Jackson, Michigan. He turned 80 this year, and it's hard to know how long investigators have to pick at what's left of his brain. I suspect that he holds the key to solving up to half a dozen open cases here in Michigan. This episode was researched by me and written by Brittany Martinez. Special thanks to Jenny Decker of the Down and Away podcast for her research help. Audio editing by Cesare Gray of Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Remember, you can find additional content both on Patreon at patreon.com slash already gone and on my new YouTube channel, which is under my name, N-I-N-A-I-N-N-S-T-E-D. I appreciate you listening and please be safe. Thank you.